following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, does anybody here this morning need a day off? Wow, only two people. Three. Well, the rest of you get to work. What are you doing? A week off. Well, okay, how many of you need a week off? Ah, now we're talking. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in a, um, I was teaching at a pastors' conference in India, and there was about 250 national Indian pastors and church planners there, and uh, the Lord just really impressed upon me, burdened me to challenge these guys about uh, taking time off. And so I asked this, this group of pastors. Uh, how many of you regularly take off at least one day a week? You know how many people raise their hand? Zero. Not one person. Of all these church leaders, ministers, guys leading God's church, not one of them could honestly say they regularly took off even one day per week. Um, well, I'm assuming you do at least take something of a day off because you're here. I hope this counts as something of a day off or something. Uh, you're not at your job anyway, except for me. I'm at my job. <laughs> so, um, this morning we want to look at Genesis chapter 2. Uh, sadly, there's a chapter break here. It really should be the end of chapter 1 because it really is one piece with the first six days of creation, the seventh day being a day of rest. We want to look at this whole issue of rest and of taking days off and of Sabbath. Uh, when I was a ch- when I was a kid, I went to church, uh, to a kind of a community church, and I didn't know what any of it meant except it had something to do with Jesus and God and the Bible, the three great Sunday school answers that counted for everything, worked for every every question. God, Jesus, or the Bible covered it all. And I remember going to uh, a, a relative's church one time, and um, we were visiting them, and you know, we went to church, same thing. God, Jesus, the Bible, it works everywhere. It was universal. But after the service, uh, my, my cousin, his, his dad was a pastor. And uh, my routine on Sunday was after church, after lunch, was you play hard. I mean, it is a day devoted to great activity and play. And so I was all ready to go play football, baseball, catch, whatever. And my friend said, we can't do that. I said, why? He said, well, it's the Sabbath. And you can't play on the Sabbath. And you can't watch football, you can't watch games, you can't do anything fun if it's fun, you can't do it on the Sabbath. And this is like new to me. I, I had never heard this before. And uh, it rather shook me up. And uh, I was troubled about this for many years. A little later, I went to another church that was pretty hardcore about the Bible. And same kind of thing. You know, it's like you don't do things. You do not have fun. Well, this second church I went to as a, as a high school student, you never had fun. Seven days a week, you don't have fun. But especially not on Sunday, Right? You really don't have fun. In fact, you work extra hard at being miserable because it's the Sabbath. Um, well, what is the Sabbath? You know, a lot of churches, uh, you know, do we celebrate? The, is Sunday our Sabbath, even though it's the first day of the week, not the seventh? There's a lot of interesting questions, and as we look at Genesis, it raises perhaps even more questions. But uh, let's look at um, what the Word teaches us. So let me read just the first three verses of chapter 2. So the creations of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. 
On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And because and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his works of creation. Um, <clears throat> the seventh day it completes this week of creation. And uh, in it, God teaches some very important principles and really sets for us some, some universal, I believe, universal principles about life for us. So let's look at uh, what it says here. And it's real simple. In fact, it repeats about four times the phrase that God finished his work. Uh, it doesn't come out so well in this translation, but you read through in the Hebrew and some other translations. Basically, it says four times God completed the work that he had set out to do. Uh, in the very center of it, uh, in, in Hebrew literature and, and method, oftentimes the most important thing would be right in the center of the target. And in the very center of this very elaborately, carefully constructed uh, verse is the word rested, literally the word Sabbath. It's not the, the noun form of the Sabbath, but it's the verb, verb form of Sabbath, God's Sabbath, God rested. So God completed his work, he finished all that he had created, it was finished and completed, and so on the seventh day he rested. Well, what does it mean that God rested? Well, first off, the real emphasis or focus of this passage is that God finished his work. Okay, God completed everything he had intended to do in creation. It's significant that the day of rest didn't come on the third or fourth day. And it wasn't like God needed to take a break. Like the first three days wore him out and God had to go, oh, this is just killing me. I'm going to take a day off. I'm going to go to the beach, hang out a bit, and I'll finish it when I come back. Right? Well, God didn't do that. God obviously doesn't get tired or weary. He doesn't get worn out like we do. He wasn't exhausted. Uh, he rested on the seventh day. It says, and the emphasis here, you've got to understand this, has nothing to do with him being tired or worn out or weary or needing, you know, he's getting burned out. God was not about to get burned out like we are. But the point is that he finished his work. Okay, there was nothing else to do. He rested because creation was complete. Okay, there was nothing to add to it. There was nothing to rearrange it. There was nothing to make it better. In other words, okay, this is the good news. When God created, he didn't have to have a beta version. Okay, you guys know what a beta version is? Some of you computer geeky guys will know this. You know, When software designers are writing software, um, they know that it's going to be inherently flawed and screwed up. Right? But they want you to use their inherently flawed and screwed up version to help them figure out what's screwed up and what's not working. So they give you a beta version, which means a version that's guaranteed to crash, right? Because it doesn't work, right? Now, sometimes, like, you know, Windows Vista, they actually call it the real thing, and it still doesn't work. But it buys them time, three years to start over. Okay, God doesn't work that way. God didn't have to create a world that was almost right or good, like a prototype, you know. Uh, he got it right and perfect the first time, absolutely flawlessly, designed as he intended. So God could get to the end of the sixth day and he could look at all he had created. Uh, he could look at the stars and the moon, the planet, sun and light, darkness, uh, separating and dividing and organizing and ordering as he had done. And he could get to the end and he could say, it is complete. It's, it's perfect in its design and function. It is everything that I desire it to be. It is what I wanted. Okay, it's what I envisioned. 
I got it right the first time. I don't need to upgrade, update, upload, revise, revamp, remodel. Okay, it is good. In fact, he finishes verse uh, chapter one by stating that it is exceedingly good, exceedingly good. God approved it and all that He had made, and so therefore He rested. For God, it means ceasing to work because the work is finished and completed. Okay, that's what it means for God to rest. Okay, He ceased from His work because it was finished. It was all that He intended. It was good. Now, of course. Uh, you know, this is where the deists came in and say, well, God completed it and He made it so good that He actually could leave, right? It's this great clock, this great piece of machinery that was so well-tuned and so perfect and so fine, finely uh, ordered that it didn't even need God anymore. Okay, He checked out. He left, right? Well, that's unnecessary. And in fact, we know that for God, resting does not mean that God stops working. In fact, throughout Scripture, it makes it very clear that God is constantly at work in His creation, sustaining and ordering it, ordering it and governing it. Okay, so God's rest does not mean that He stopped everything, that He walked away from creation because it could operate without Him. Absolutely not true. God, even in His rest, is actively sustaining and holding together all of creation. Colossians 1 tells that Jesus is holding together uh, the very molecules of the universe. So God's rest doesn't mean that He's no longer active or involved or a part of it, but it means that His work of creating, what it is He made, was finished and complete. There was nothing else to add to it or fix up or change. It was as He intended it to be. And it really is a picture of His, his sovereignty and really His great lordship over creation. As a perfect creator God, He made what He wanted according to His design and plan, exactly as He intended, it was good. It was exceedingly good. Everything worked according to his original intent and design. Okay, So that's what it is. And his rest was simply the end of his work. Uh, so that's what God's rest is and what it indicates. And it says that he blessed the seventh day, that he declared it holy, because it was the day he rested from all his work. And so there's something about the seventh day that we identify and we see the perfection of God in all of His works. Okay, that's one of the meanings of Sabbath. God blessed it and made it holy. In other words, He set aside this day to say, look, when I do something, I do it right, and when I rest, it's finished, it's done. Right? Uh, hold and remember that thought because we'll come back to it. <clears throat> well, we all know that uh, from this, is this whole idea or notion of, of the Sabbath, the seventh day, uh, celebrated by Jews around the world and others as, uh, you know, on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, as a holy day. Well, what does this mean for us as Christians? What does this mean for us as the church? Uh, when, it, when it falls as part of God's created order, it seems pretty serious. I mean, God himself, long before the law, before Jews, before Moses, before any of that, God set aside the seventh day as holy. So what are we supposed to do with this? You know, am I, uh, Are we to be keeping the Sabbath? Well, let me look real briefly, a quick uh, run-through of kind of the biblical view from Genesis to Revelation of Sabbath, okay, in five minutes or less. Well, maybe seven minutes or less. Uh, first of all, it's significant and interesting uh, 
that in all of the account of Genesis, there's a certain rhythm to life. Okay? And in fact, when, when God speaks about creating the stars and the sun and the moon, He said they are a sign in the heavens to mark time for you, to kind of spell out or order the rhythm of life for you. And there are certain patterns or rhythms that we all live by. One would be day and night. Um, it's kind of a given thing. The, the, the earth spins, the sun comes up and it goes down, and there's daylight and there's darkness, and that's a rhythm or pattern to our life. We're supposed to be awake during the day. We're supposed to sleep at night, right? That's the goal. Um, not everybody does it work that way, but that's the goal. Uh, some of us are night people, some of us are morning people. But the plan is, by God, that there's a rhythm to that. The daylight is for waking and nighttime is for sleeping. Um, so it governs our, our bodily rest cycle. Another rhythm of life is the month. And that's set by the moon and uh, the phases of the moon. And of course, in our modern world with calendars and clocks and daytimers and planners, most of us are not aware of the phase of the moon today. Does anybody know what the phase of the moon is right now? What is it? It's a half moon. It's a half moon. Uh, but I wouldn't have known that normally, okay? Uh, it's not like we're going over. It is, you know, the, I couldn't tell you, honestly, if it's waxing or waning. I have no clue because we don't operate that. But back in Bible times, old ancient time, that was how they marked the cycle of a, of a month, okay? Uh, the moon... The moon's cycle is 29 and a half days. So roughly where we get our month from. Uh, the moon governs rent, utility bills, and our paycheck. Right? Okay, I don't know how biblical that is, but it's kind of how it works out. Right? Aren't you glad we don't have to pay rent and utilities annually? All right? I would be in serious trouble because there's no way I would plan that far ahead. And so God gave us the division of a month to help regulate some of the way we operate and live life. He broke the year down into smaller chunks so we could negotiate it. Uh, another, another rhythm of life is the year. The earth makes one wrap, lap around the sun, 365 days, and it governs really the seasons, times of planting and harvest, and also festivals and holidays. Those are some of the rhythms of life, and they're all directly connected to the way the astral bodies uh, you know, cycle, the planetary um, motion of stars and sun and moon and earth, right? Now, what about the rhythm of, of the week? Where does the seven-day week come from? Okay, why is it we have a seven-day week? And what is it about life that makes it a rhythm? Um, well, there's no explanation in the planetary orbits, first of all. There's nothing in the cosmic arrangement of sun, moon, or stars, or earth that explains a seven-day week. In fact, it actually doesn't fit well at all. In, in, in truth, the seven-day week is kind of a, well, it's a disaster in terms of lining up with, with days, months, and years. Okay, for example, uh, four sevens equals 28. So four seven-day weeks is 28 days. This shows you my great prowess with math. Right, 28 days, which is a day and a half short of the moon cycle. Okay, so right off the bat, the weeks don't line up with the months. Okay, that's a huge problem. In fact, it's interesting, um, the, uh, the seven-day week is, if you look at the, the actual Thai calendar, the traditional uh, religious Thai calendar, you know how long a week is? Well, it varies. Sometimes seven days, sometimes eight days, sometimes nine days. 
because they work their weeks out around the lunar calendar. So it comes down to 14s and patterns of 14 and 15, all right? Because seven days doesn't work, all right? Seven days, uh, it, would be much, it would make much more sense, it would fit much better if we had six, uh, five weeks of six days. Okay, let's vote for that. How many would rather have five weeks of six days? Okay? It would work much more efficiently, because that would be 30, it would be much closer to the lunar cycle. It doesn't actually also work with the year either, because seven weeks, uh, 52 weeks of seven days, okay, hang with me on the math here, okay? I should have written this down. Sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint. Um, Seven, uh, 52 weeks of seven days comes out to 52 weeks and one day left over. Okay, it doesn't fit into one year. What would be a much better system is to have a five-day week because it's a perfect 73 weeks. Okay, and you wouldn't have to have all this leap year nonsense and all this confusion, right? Okay, let's vote on that one. It would make much more sense, right? Where does seven weeks come from? Why do we have seven days in a week? It doesn't fit with anything. Um... Where did it come from? Well, uh, historians tell us that the Jews did not seriously follow the seven-day week till the time of the Exodus. Uh, early days in creation, there's no real evidence from creation through Noah, through early days of Israel, that they really followed a seven-day week. Although there is evidence that uh, in Babylon, in Mesopotamia, and in Egypt, they, they had some festivals and some arrangement of seven days. For example, the Babylonians saw the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th days as being evil. And so you had to be extra good, otherwise the gods would zap you on those days. Right? So there are these patterns uh, in many pagan uh, temple ceremonies and especially shrine dedications. They were often seven days long. And through a seven-day uh, festival cycle, you would dedicate a shrine, and then on the seventh day, the god would come and live in the shrine. Um, but it still doesn't explain where the seven days came from. Well, a very popular theory about 150 years ago was that the seven days came from the seven most visible bodies in the sky, being the sun, the moon, and the five, at that time, five, most, five visible planets. Okay? And, uh, of course, that's where we get the names for the days from. We've got Sunday, named after the sun, Moon Day, or Monday, right? Saturn Day. Okay, those are all named after the, the heavenly bodies, right? So some people argue that, well, that's where they came from. Early man, ancient man, looked up in the sky and he noticed these seven bodies and he decided to give each of them a day. The only problem with that theory is that the names were actually given to the days about the time of Christ, about a thousand years after they were using a seven-day week cycle. Okay, so that doesn't really explain it. Um, where does it come from? Why do we have a seven-day week when it, for all practical reasons, fits nothing and complicates our calendars uh, in all kinds of ways? Well, the only explanation is that we have a seven-day week because God created in seven days. Okay? It came from God. There's no other clear, logical, or even illogical explanation for a seven-day week. That's kind of one of the cool things, and it's really one of the great... Um, strikes against evolution. Uh, if, if it's all just about man doing his thing and figuring life out on his own, there's much better ways to come up with a week. All right? uh, even most governments could do it better. Okay? Um, scary, I know. Uh, we have a system that just flat doesn't work with anything. 
Why? Well, because God called it that way. God created in seven days. Um, why did God create in seven days? Uh, did God need six days to do this? Well, absolutely not, okay? For God who exists beyond time and space, who spoke it into existence, He could have created the world in seven seconds, in seven milliseconds. Or He could have taken seven trillion years, okay? To God, it's all the same. God chose seven days. God, God ordered and ordained seven days of creation. All right? Why? I don't know, okay? I have no clue, and nobody else does either. Other than to say this, that there's something about the rhythm of life that God ordered in seven days. Okay, God and His plan and His wisdom and His foresight for our benefit, not for His own benefit, okay, God doesn't operate in time. God didn't need seven days, okay? God didn't look at His life and say, you know, I could do about six days worth of work and then whew, i got to take a break. No, it was ordained and ordered for us that one of the rhythms of life would work with the way we were designed and created that we would work six and we would, we would have a day of rest, a seventh. Um, God set it and ordained it as one of the rhythms of life. Right? And I think it's important for us to recognize God's design and sovereign plan in the way He ordered His world. Okay? A lot of the creation account is, as we've said, is all about seven. Seven's this, seven's that. Uh, God wanted to make a point here about uh, the rhythm and order of our life. And uh, life works well when we understand this order and, and live by it. Well, as we know, uh, later on in history, uh, man began to recognize formally and observe the seven-day week, the seven-day cycle, and observe Sabbaths. Uh, and Moses implemented with the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law, Moses implemented the ordinance or the keeping of the Sabbath. Well, in the Old Testament, and again, just real quickly, let me give you four purposes of the Sabbath as it was designed and given by God through the law. If you read Exodus 20, it says, Remember to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners living among you. For six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and said the part is holy. Uh, first purpose is the Sabbath was given to the Israelites, the Jews, to um, recognize and respect God's order in creation. Okay, and it's very much connected to God's six days of creation, uh, seven days of creation. Um, second purpose, it's interesting in Deuteronomy, same exact uh, passage of God giving the Ten Commandments, the same law is given. However, the reason for it changes. In Deuteronomy it says, you're not supposed to work because, in verse 15, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with His strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. So the second purpose is that they were to remember God's saving work of redemption. It was a day set apart to remember that God had saved them. 
And every Sabbath, one of the things they were to be doing was to be looking back to uh, God's deliverance from Egypt. Uh, third purpose in the Old Testament, in both of these passages, it makes it very clear that not only were they supposed to take a day off, but everybody, foreigners, slaves, your dog, your cat, your cow, your donkey, everything gets a day of rest. And uh, it illustrates the principle that we are not unlimited in power and ability. We are human beings that hit a wall. Okay, we need rest. We need time off. And then not only the well, it's not a matter of just the wealthy who can afford to take time off, but even your slaves and the lowest members of society are to be given time and space for rest. And lastly, uh, it was also designated as a sign of the covenant. Uh, one of the ways that they knew they were covenant people in a covenant relationship with God was that they celebrated the Sabbath. So when everybody around saw, you know, you go to, if you come from, you know, Egypt to Jerusalem and you want to buy a McDonald's hamburger on Sunday, guess what? It's closed. You know, you want to go to Tesco Lotus. Okay, and it's closed, not because of a curfew, but because it's the Sabbath, right? And you want to go shopping, ah, it's the Sabbath, right? Every Sabbath. So people from all around the world knew that for Israel, there was no shopping, no buying, no restaurants. Everything is closed on Sabbath. And they would say, why do you do this? Don't you know it's bad for your economy? All these tourists coming from out of the country and they want to buy stuff and you're closed on Saturday. They said, well, it's not about economy. It's about covenant relationship. We are a covenant people, and we are in covenant relationship with God. And so as part of that covenant, we take off this holy day. Well, those were the Old Testament design of, of Sabbath. Uh, and things went quite well, and um, certainly throughout the Old Testament, is, it's spoken of as a very important celebration rite of Israel. However, by the time of Jesus, Sab the Sabbath had been quite hijacked. And uh, if you look at the Jewish laws and the Talgum, uh, Targums and, and Midrashes and the commentaries that they wrote, there are actually 39 classes, not 39 regulations, 39 classes of regulations governing the Sabbath. Okay? So in other words, they had 39 different subject areas where you could break or violate the Sabbath. Uh, by Jesus' day, the Sabbath had become anything but a day of rest. It had become a day of excessive law-keeping. Okay, and everything you did had to be evaluated. Okay, is it okay to blink my eyes? You know, <laughs> Is it okay to brush my teeth? Is it okay to blow my nose? Okay, everything, everything you did was governed by some rule or ordinance. All right? And so when Jesus came, he really reclaims the Sabbath. And we all know Jesus you know, healed on the Sabbath. Uh, he got into some of his worst fights with the Pharisees and Sadducees over keeping of the Sabbath. And uh, one of the things that they really came to despise and detest about Jesus was that he was constantly breaking the Sabbath. Uh, mostly breaking their man-made traditions about the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus finally says, look, I am God, I am Lord of the Sabbath, I have right to rule over it. The second principle that he, he shares is that, by the way, 
God gave the Sabbath as a benefit for man. It is to help us, not as a burden. Okay, You've turned it upside down. You've made man for the Sabbath, but God designed the Sabbath for us. So Jesus did not... Uh, he did not banish or undo the Sabbath. He did not do away with it or abolish it. But he did refocus it on its original intent and purpose. Well, what about Paul in the Sabbath? Well, if Jesus didn't abolish it, Paul did. Okay, Paul clearly abolished the Sabbath, along with the rest of Old Testament law. Uh, one of the most clear verses where Paul addresses the Sabbath is Colossians 2.16, where Paul says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths. Okay, so Paul makes it very clear. Uh, you come to Jesus by faith alone, not through law. Okay, We don't come to Christ through Judaism. We don't come to Christ through keeping Sabbaths and holy days and by our dietary rules. All right? He cast all that aside. All right? Uh, so we are off the hook, right? No Sabbath. We can do whatever we want. Our life is ours. Our time is ours to do it as we please, right? And so we don't celebrate Sabbath. Um, most modern evangelical churches don't practice Sabbath. We don't really call, some people call Sunday the Sabbath, but we don't really practice uh, the Sabbath like the Jews did, right? Uh, some churches worship on Saturday because they practice a, you know, Seventh-day Adventists and some of those practice a very deliberate Sabbath day. Uh, what do we do with the Sabbath, you know? Jesus seems to not have taken it too seriously. Paul abolishes it. Um, what is the meaning of it? What is the purpose of all this? Uh, does it mean we can go watch football, play golf, goof around on Sunday? Are we free to do whatever we want? What does it mean? Well, let me just give a couple observations about Genesis chapter 2. Um, one of the interesting things is in verse 3, it says that God blesses the, the seventh day and declared it holy, made it sacred. Made it sacred. What does it mean to make something sacred? By the way, God, it says God has made you as his saints. We are holy people, right? You and I have been made sacred. We have been made holy. What does that mean? Well, it partly means that we have been made sinless by the blood and righteousness of Christ. But holiness really means much more than that. Holiness is not simply being without sin. Uh, it really has the idea of setting something apart and devoting it exclusively for God's use. Okay, that's what sanctifying or making something sacred is. So if you devote something to God, you set it aside for His use and purpose alone. Okay, God says that He took the seventh day and He set it apart for His own exclusive use and purpose. It is a holy day. A day set aside exclusively for His design and purpose. Um, and He also blessed it. Uh, it's a strange thing to bless. In fact, what you find here is this. Uh, there's no religion, especially in, in pagan times, there was no religion or worship that focused on time. Okay? Now you could, you could make sacred or blessed a place, 
And so you had you had temples, you had mountaintops in Thailand. You know, every mountaintop is, is sacred. Um, and you see on many mountaintops, temples, right? Because you make that space sacred. Uh, you can give things to the gods and make things sacred. Okay, and in the temple they did that. The objects of worship were set apart for God. We can be set apart for God. But what a concept that you can make time sacred. Okay? You can make time set apart for God. Um, in fact, uh, when you look at Genesis and the acts of creation, the only thing that God calls holy is the seventh day. Interestingly enough, in all of God's creating work, He didn't call anything else sacred or holy. He didn't set anything else aside exclusively for His own use. But He did time. Okay, he set time apart for himself. But what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means this, that when it comes to our worship and our devotion and our life before God, one of the greatest gifts of worship we can give God is time. Okay, one of the things that he longs for us more than anything else is time, the space of time. Right? Uh, now, are we called or commanded to do this? Well, we're not. You know, Paul has made it very clear that as believers, we're not commanded or demanded to set some amount of time apart before God. Okay, we don't make Sunday devoted exclusively for God as some law that we keep. However, is there some principle that God would like for us, freely and willingly out of our love and worship for Him, to set aside time just for Him? And I, I would say that, uh, you know, in our day and age, we, we have become a people who live to do things, right? And I think most of us would say, you know, I have devoted my life and set it aside to serving God. Okay, how many of you would say, yeah, raise your hand, but how many of you would say in your own heart, yeah, I've devoted and set my whole life apart as service, as, as worship to God. And that's what we ought to do. It's the greatest gift we can give is our life. And for most of us, that means doing stuff for God. Okay? It means, it means six days of business and busyness and activity, worshiping God in what I do. And what's happened is we have a great version of performance-based Christianity that says, my worth and my worthiness and my greatest gift is what I can do for God. One of the great principles of, of the, the, the week of creation is this. God said, you know, I can do all kinds of cool stuff. And the bottom line is, I'm the one who works. Okay, there's nothing you can do to add to what I have created because I have completed it. Okay, not only in the first creation in Genesis, but in Jesus when he recreated and redeemed and regenerated his creation, Jesus completed it. Jesus said, I have finished the work that the Father gave me to do. It is done. It's completed. Okay, there's absolutely nothing you and I can do to add to God's creation or His recreation and what Jesus has done in redemption. Bottom line is, God does not need your work. He doesn't need my work. He does not need our labor. One of the messages of, of Genesis chapter 2 is that God is the one who works and creates and does. Right? He gives us the opportunity to join with Him in His work. But the bottom line is, God does the work. And He doesn't need our labor. All right? 
I would be real honest with yourself. What do you think has more value to God? What you do in service to Him or doing nothing before Him? Right? Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, what I say is, well, if I don't do anything, I'm wasting time. I'm being lazy. I am not being productive. Right? Heaven forbid that we should not be productive. Because that's a sin, right? It must be. Because we live to be productive. Well, what are we producing? Well, here's what we're doing. We are spending all of our time doing, but what are we really getting done? God said, look, I did it in six days and it's finished. I accomplished my job. What are you getting done? Right? What I find myself is I find myself very busy doing stuff and getting nothing done. Right? I'm busy. I'm really busy. Am I accomplishing anything? Right? Well, bottom line is God says, the only one who's going to accomplish anything is me. I'm the one who works. Okay? God set aside a day of rest sacred to himself. And here's a principle that uh, I hope blows your mind. I hope this is something you've never heard before and you just go, wow, I've never heard this before. God is going to be mostly honored and most worshipped in your life by not, but with, by not what you do, but by what you don't do in stillness and silence before Him. Okay? One of the greatest things you can do in worship is give God empty time and space to do nothing before Him except be with Him. You see, when God created, it says He rested, He finished His work, He finished His creation. And really the picture of this is is the guy who's gone out and he has spent all week creating for himself a beautiful garden. And he's pruned and he's planted plants and he has arranged and he has designed and made for himself a beautiful garden. Okay? And after six days, there is just this beautiful place. And then he says, okay, that garden's done. On to the next garden. Because I've got to make more gardens. Well, no, no. That's not what he says, is it? He says, ah, I am finished. I'm getting a glass of iced tea. I'm going out and I'm going to sit in my garden and I am going to enjoy what I have done. I'm just going to sit and I'm going to look at the flowers and I'm going to watch the birds come and enjoy this place and I am going to relax in my garden. So that's the picture of what God is doing in creation. He created this place for Himself, not for us, not for its own benefit, but for himself. He created the world and the universe. And when he was done creating it, it was exactly what he wanted. He got his cup of iced tea and a good book. I don't know. And he sat down in the middle of his garden and he relaxed and he enjoyed what he had made. He didn't need to do anything. He didn't need to accomplish anything else. He knows what it is to just be and to enjoy the wonder of his work. Do we know how to do that? Do we know how to stop and do nothing and be in God's presence and enjoy the wonder of His work? To, to look at our own life and say, God, I can't make myself into anything. It is a work you must do in me, but I know you're doing that work. And during certain times in my life, I'm going to set aside time and space to do nothing but just be in your presence. What would that be like? What would it be like to have space in your life where you don't do anything but just sit still and quiet before God? 
Most of you are thinking, well, that's just the dumbest, worst thing I've ever heard of in my life. Who, what would I do? Right? Can you imagine space without computers or TV or video games or MP3 players or music or anything but just space with God? Well, that's the most terrifying thing ever, right? All right? In fact, the reality is that most of us, we try to do that, can't. Because we have lost the art and ability to be still and quiet before God. We cannot Sabbath anymore because we have lost it. And we have so convinced ourselves that our value and worth is wrapped up in what we do that we cannot do nothing, right? We just can't do it. And God, I think, is teaching us in Genesis that this is the highest call of our being and our existence. We were created in God's image. We are created in a pattern likeness after Him so that we can be in communion and relationship with Him. And the place that that communion and relationship most likely will take place to its deepest and fullest extent is when we don't work, when we enter into rest and we are still and quiet before God. Imagine what it would be like you know, if we really did set aside a whole day a week just devoted in sacred time and space for God. What would that be like in your life? Uh, what would it be like to be still and at rest, truly at rest before God? And to devote a whole day to worship and communion with Him. Well, I don't know what it would be like because I don't know that I've ever done it, actually. Well, actually, on rare occasions I have. Uh, I think this is what it would do. It would radically alter the other six days of the week. It would change everything about those other six days. And it would make you incredibly productive and effective. Uh, Jesus said that the seventh day is blessed. I think God has a blessing for us on that day of rest. Uh, his richest blessing, and a blessing that would extend so deeply into our life that it would affect all the rest of our week and our year. But it's a blessing most of us have never tasted or encountered or experienced because we've never done it. Right? We've never honored and worshipped God by giving Him space. Right? Uh, now in the real world, how do you do that? I don't know. You know, in your own life, you've got you to work it out before God. It's not intended to be a legalistic ritual. I mean, the Jews killed it by legislating it to death. Worst thing we can do is start legislating it. Worst thing we can do is start coming up with a list of what you can and can't do on this day. All right? That's not the intent. Okay? Uh, does it mean if there's an emergency comes over? It doesn't mean you can't work. Does it mean it has to be a full day? What does it mean? I don't know. But the principle is this. God has ordained in His design of created order of all time that one of the greatest things we can give to Him is time itself. To set aside all labor, to set aside all doing, to set aside all the gadgets in our life, and just be still and quiet before God. Uh, I challenge us all to just pray about what God would want that to look like in our own life. And I believe it would radically change uh, our doing and our being before God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do want 
and I know I know every person here wants to worship you. Or we came this morning because we had a heart and an intention to worship you. Because we believe you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our worship. Lord, you created us. You made us in your image and you are redeeming us. And Lord, we, we, uh, we also, I pray, are realizing this lie that our greatest worship is our service to you. And certainly, Lord, you, you call us to service. You invite us to work six days out of seven. And work is a big part of our life. And doing is a big part of our existence. But Lord, help us to see the other side of the coin. That perhaps our deepest and greatest worship is not in what we do, but in what we don't do. In uh, entering into your rest, as Hebrews says entering into the finished work of God in our life and just enjoying your presence. Uh, Lord, we have lost that art and that gift and it's so far away from our daily existence. And maybe we take days off, but how often do we take days of true Sabbath rest, holy and consecrated to you, of just being in your presence? Lord, teach us how to do that. Uh, Teach us to honor you in our rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.